Thank you very much, Ben. Um, it's a great privilege to be here. I'm delighted to be invited back to talk to people in Brisbane from QUT uh, uh, on a, another occasion. Can I commence by uh, acknowledging uh, the elders, past and present, of the, uh, the land where we're meeting? Now, what I'd like to talk to you about is a subject that's really important for, uh, for people's lives. And uh, I'm going to discuss with you uh, where coronial, I beg your pardon, where medicinal cannabis law reform has come from. It's Belinda Carpenter's fault I was talking to her about coroners. Uh, but where uh, law reform to do with medicinal cannabis uh, has come from in Australia, what's given rise to the changes throughout the country and most particularly uh, in Queensland, and where we might well be going uh, from this time onwards. And I, I'm, I'm at times going to talk about people and because I, I believe passionately that health law is actually about people, uh, not just about principles of black letter law and things that are argued in uh, obscure tribunals and courts, but about how one can harness the law in its various manifestations uh, to improve the services uh, that are provided uh, to patients from all manner of practitioners and all manner of different circumstances. So, Let's start with basic issues to do with uh, cannabis as it's been employed for medicinal purposes. It has been so directed for a very long time uh, in different parts of the world. For the most part, we'll be talking about two different kinds of, of cannabis, uh, sativa and indica. It, it, it's an intriguing plant, and we know very little about it uh, to speak of thus far. There are in the order of 80 to 100 cannabinoids in your standard cannabis plant. And we know about the applications and the usages of a very small number of them as yet. The ones, of course, one people think about are THC, which has the euphoriant effects. Uh, but uh, in particular, cannabidiol, which is known as CBD, which also is useful in relation to a range of medical conditions, most particularly those associated with epilepsy. But there are a whole host of others, including CBN, to which I make reference on the overhead. Cannabis can be absorbed into the system in a wide variety of ways. There are a number of formal pharmaceutical products that are cannabinoid, some of them synthetic, some of them organic. And I'll make reference to some of those. But one of the surprising things is the extent of the literature uh, about the medical application of cannabis, but at the same time how relatively impoverished it is as yet in terms of sound scientific status. I'll make reference to a number of studies, but getting ready to talk to you tonight, I did a review of the published literature uh, uh, from 2016 to make sure that you didn't ask me questions about the very latest that I wouldn't be able to answer. And what I can tell you on the basis of that is that there are um, that more than 400 papers have been published in the peer-reviewed literature this year about the area. But still, relatively few of those are about trials that have been double-blind, placebo-controlled. Much of them are still people expressing their views and talking about anecdotes and proffering views about what should or shouldn't happen. I, I said that law reform in this area is driven by and, and centred around people, and, and so it should be. 
I, I'm going to make a couple of references to things Victorian, so please forgive me for that, and then I'll concentrate more on, uh, on Queensland and international things. But I, I, I'm referring to things Victorian because, as you heard, I was the Commissioner in charge of the law reform reference uh, to do with medicinal cannabis, and the law reform that's happened at Commonwealth, Victorian and Queensland level arises in substantial part from the report of the Law Reform Commission in 2015. Why was a reference given to the Victorian Law Reform Commission? Uh, because that uh, gentleman on your right is the Victorian Premier, and uh, he was the subject of lobbying in relation to some children who had paediatric epilepsy and were in a miserable state of health, and their parents passionately believed that getting to them illegally obtained medicinal cannabis had made huge changes in relation to the well-being of those children. And that genuinely engaged the Premier's uh, passions and empathy and determination to change the law. And you can see him with one of the children there. There's another of the children who has ended up being highly influential in terms of Victorian law reform. Uh, little Tara, uh, who uh, was having up to 200 seizures a day, and her mother, uh, uh, Cherie, got hold of uh, 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 medicinal cannabis uh, from sources that she probably wouldn't want me to reveal. And uh, she maintains that that's had a, an absolutely profound effect upon the well-being of her daughter. There's little Cooper Wallace, uh, who's probably the single person who has uh, uh, generated the law reform throughout Australia. But there are plenty of, uh, of faces and names and, more importantly, real people in, uh, in Queensland who have similarly become the face and the instrument of political lobbying in this state that have brought about uh, the changes to the law uh, here. There's uh, little uh, uh, Lachlan, who's had a, a terrible time, Laura Massey. And these are all pictures uh, from the internet, so I'm not uh, breaching any confidentiality or patient privacy in showing them. Lindsay Carter, as well, whose uh, mother uh, has been very high profile in relation to the need for uh, law reform. Uh, Lindsay having a, a brain tumour and needing uh, a range of forms of, uh, of analgesic relief because of the symptoms arising from that. And little Suli, uh, who had a spectacular number of seizures per day. So the task when it came to the uh, Law Reform Commission was to think through what could be done in terms of changing the law. And it was a fascinating and challenging and confronting experience to try to put together a form of change to the law which preserved what matters and which is good in, uh, in the law, but also catered appropriately for special needs in exceptional circumstances. And it seemed to me that the bases for changing the law in an area such as this uh, should be objective and scientifically defensible and rigorous, should be based on high quality data. One should therefore be able to assess uh, the efficacy of the product, medicinal cannabis, for different areas of, uh, of health condition and evaluate against the positive asserted benefits any risks that were relevant. At the same time, it would be important for those who might be prescribed it or have it made available to them 
to be given enough information to enable them, or at least their parents, to make informed choices about whether uh, they wanted to take those risks which they would be running. Also fundamental to this kind of reform to the law would be engaging those who would be affected by it and who would have responsibility for implementing it, by which I particularly mean uh, medical practitioners and pharmacists, as well as police, bureaucrats, and all manner of others, because changing the law in this way has a great many ramifications. It impacts on all sorts of systems that we have in place in different ways. One of the remarkable features of the exercise in uh, investigating this area was dealing with the, uh, the, 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 the lobby movement on behalf of medicinal cannabis and to a lesser degree on behalf of recreational use of cannabis. Uh, I was taken aback, impressed, uh, and, and wrestled with the professionalism of the, uh, the lobby that was brought to bear on the, uh, the commission. It was interesting, impressive, and at times complex, uh, but a very significant part of the real world dynamics of, uh, of dealing with uh, what should take place in terms of reform to the law in this area. And the way in which the cannabis law reform lobby mounted its campaign, argued in respect of it, influenced politicians and others, will undoubtedly be a model for how law reform campaigns in a variety of contexts, including to do with end of life, something that I know Ben's very interested in, uh, throughout Australia and in other places in the years to come. So it was a, an exercise in understanding it, engaging with it, but being wary of it, because as you'll see, some of the claims made on behalf of medicinal cannabis are exuberant in the extreme and not as yet supported by the clinical literature. And another issue in all of this is, is the cost. Uh, how does one construct a system whereby medicinal cannabis potentially bypasses our traditional therapeutic goods administration systems to become a medicinal product that is available, but available at a cost which enables it actually to be purchased by those who need it? So there are a range of tensions, and they include upholding and supporting and not undermining the Therapeutic Goods Administration of Australia, which has played uh, a long and honourable and valuable role in ensuring that uh, we are not victims of drugs whose side effects are not yet known, but at the same time enabling access for probably compassionate reasons principally to products uh, which have not been subject to the kind of rigorous oversight and scrutiny which bodies like the Therapeutic Goods Administration and its cousins in other countries bring to bear. At the same time, uh, the message from the government, and one that I was comfortable with, was that they wanted to maintain the criminalisation of uh, uh, recreational use of cannabis, and so they were prepared to carve out medicinal cannabis, but they wanted that to be done in such a way as not to undermine uh, the unavailability and the criminality of possession and use and cultivation and trafficking of cannabis uh, in other areas. In addition, there are a whole range of public health strategies which we have, including to do with smoking. And uh, if one is to enable access to medicinal cannabis, it would make sense to have a scheme which is coherent and conforms to our general public health strategies. 
Likewise, we, we have other mechanisms for dealing with a range of conditions, including uh, analgesics, opiates in particular. Opiates have had a, an interesting and complex history, another fascinating plant. But uh, opiates have been abused. Plenty of people die when they ought not to from opiate abuse. And if we're going to implement systems for access to medicinal cannabis, it will be important to learn from what has gone wrong in relation to opiates and try to make sure that we can do better in relation to another option. People speak about access to medicinal cannabis often through the lens of compassion. A traditional plant to do with uh, compassion from our indigenous peoples of Australia is the boab flower. It's believed to have a whole range of healing qualities and it's often spoken of in terms of a plant that has a particularly uh, compassionate aspect to its functioning. If we're going to talk about making cannabis available for compassionate reasons, it's important to use as much precision and care with that notion as we can. But what, what does compassion mean in the context of medical product provision and deployment? Well, probably the person who speaks most about compassion in contemporary society is the Dalai Lama. And, and we reflected on some of the things that he had to say in terms of compassion being more than just an attitude, but uh, having its bases in wanting others to be free from suffering, going beyond empathy and extending to a desire to do things, to, uh, to engage in actions where appropriate note, uh, to alleviate the sources of suffering. Wherever you look in the contemporary literature to do with medicinal cannabis, there is reference to compassion. And for instance, in, a, in an article that's been cited quite a bit in Australia in 2013 in the Medical Journal of Australia, again, the call was to a civilised and compassionate community, which it was said would make medicinal cannabis available to those who needed it. What was said was that we know more than enough to act now in relation to making it available. The Australian Medical Association was alert to this issue and pressed on the Law Reform Commission in Victoria the need to be cautious about acceding to calls framed in the name of compassion, warning us that that kind of law reform generated by resort to vague or subjective terms might well lead to a lack of clarity in the practice of medicine in a range of areas. And that was a, a salutary and fair warning. If you look at, uh, at, at some of the literature and the proselytising in relation to medicinal cannabis, you see everywhere resort to the, the term compassion and there are compassion clubs and, and societies and similar. It, it's a great pleasure to put together a talk on medicinal cannabis because there is so much visual material to do with cannabis. It's quite entertaining to, uh, to put things together. So you'll see an awful lot of green uh, in, uh, in the, uh, the presentation. 
Issues to do with medicinal cannabis have an ugly side. And uh, as you will know, people are charged with, uh, with trafficking and cultivation of cannabis, which they say is, uh, is being grown and provided to others for medicinal purposes. And one example is the pallets in, uh, in Victoria, who uh, believe passionately in the efficacy of medicinal cannabis for a, a range of purposes. And they're currently facing charges in the, uh, the county court. The argument that there is a necessity or a justification for growing or importing or trafficking cannabis for medicinal purposes has been argued in many places in different times. And an example, one of many, is the decision of the, uh, the Court of Appeal in England and Wales in Quail 11 years ago, where the Court of Appeal heard a string of appeals brought on this basis and framed in terms of the European Convention on Human Rights and it found that the defence of necessity did not at all avail the defendants, and nor did the convention. So it, it requires some thinking through of issues to do with compassion, because the, the, the real polarisation of argument and discussion and strong expression of view in this area is between the adherence to evidence-based medicine and the proponents of access for compassionate reasons. And what's often suggested is that those two are notions that are not compatible. There isn't a rapprochement available between the two. Well, we looked for one. And the hope is that one has been brokered. And it's very important to broker it, and I'll explain this further to you in a little while, because if, if you have a complete standoff between those who are dyed-in-the-wool supporters of only provision of that which has been established by double-blind placebo-controlled trials to be efficacious and not to have problematic side effects, on the one hand, and the proponents and evangelists of medicinal cannabis, there's just not much room for compromise right now because the evidence base is not there sufficiently as yet. So perhaps the role of compassion in this area, where feelings abound, views are strongly held, is that there can be some leavening of the rigidity and the formality, the strict requirements of evidence-based medicine utilising compassionate considerations. In particular, where the evidence base exists but is not yet of the strength that would enable products, for instance, to go through the Therapeutic Goods Administration regime. Well, plenty have thought about it, argued about it, written about it uh, in recent years throughout Australia. As you can see, there have been any number of parliamentary quasi-parliamentary reports in recent years, including in Queensland, but also in many other parts of Australia. And uh, uh, the most recent developments uh, come out of the Legal and Constitutional Committee of the Commonwealth Parliament, the ACT Legislative Committee, and the Victorian Law Reform Commission report. The outcome over uh, now the better part of two decades has been a string of bills, many of them put forward by the Greens, but some others as well, uh, into the parliaments of most parts of Australia, as you can see. And all of those there uh, went nowhere. Ultimately, they did not succeed. But 
This is where we are now. Three significant pieces of legislative intervention in Australia. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about where they came from and how they get to operate. But it's important to look elsewhere at, at what we can learn from overseas experience, because medicinal cannabis is available in a number of countries, Israel, the Netherlands, 28 states, uh, plus Washington DC in the United States, Canada, and other places beside. And we had a very good look at the United States schemes, because there's not a homogeneous approach or anything like it in the United States. Uh, some schemes there are very laissez-faire, some are quite tightly regulated. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a medicinal cannabis map of the United States. Um, it's a little bit different to the Republican-Democrat map, but uh, there are some, uh, some things in common between them. And, and one of the fascinating and problematic aspects for the United States is that, in principle, almost every scheme in the US is unlawful from the perspective of federal law. And under the recent administration's pretty much a blind eye, has been turned to that incompatibility between federal and state law. What's going to happen with the new Republican administration remains to be seen. But what we do know is that the Attorney General designate, uh, Mr Sessions, has said some fairly adverse things about uh, medicinal cannabis. And the, uh, the Trump administration may have a different approach to it from that which has preceded. The position in the United States, in spite of the fact that there are 28 different schemes, um, a number of them permitting homegrown versions, others permitting uh, prescription but on very, very liberal grounds. It's interesting to look at what the American Medical Association position is. And significantly, it is pretty much the same as the British Medical Association and New Zealand one, the Australian one, uh, proclaiming a need for further adequate and well-controlled studies of um, marijuana and related cannabinoids for patients in respect of relevant conditions. No endorsement, whatever. So that's a backdrop in the United States. We had a good look, uh, without spending taxpayers' money and, uh, and wandering around the globe on one of those uh, nice uh, study trips, but by picking up the telephone, which seemed to work quite satisfactorily. Uh, but we had a good look at some of the schemes in the States. And, uh, and one of them that I, I just thought I'd, I'd show you is the Arizona one. And I, I'm, I'm just showing you their uh, Department of Health report uh, from this year, published very, very recently, therefore. There are over 80,000 patients who are registered as entitled to receive medicinal cannabis in Arizona. 66% of them are male. 46%, so just on half, are aged between 18 and 30. Another third are aged between 31 and 40. Just on 90% of them claim to have a severe and chronic pain condition with debilitation accompanying it. 2.7% of recipients have cancer. These are very interesting statistics and they're mirrored in a number of parts of the United States. You can see where I'm drifting toward. The potential for there to be just wholesale abuse of the medicinal cannabis scheme by young people keen to get hold of uh, a dried product is very high indeed. And when you look at the numbers, you look at the age group, you look at the subjective uh, condition which absolutely dominates the recipients of medicinal cannabis in Arizona, and you can look at it in Colorado and California and a number of other states, it's the same sort of scenario. This galvanized me 
to do everything I could to avoid Australia replicating the United States schemes. I do not believe that the regulation in the United States is effective. Uh, the evidentiary basis is impoverished. Comparatively little research is being done because there's nothing in it, given the, uh, the commercial forces at play in the United States, for that research to be done. And the potential for abuse and uh, uh, redirection of the product are very, very high indeed. So a, a lot of issues and warnings from the United States experience, as already indicated. Well, what about Canada? We had a good look there too. They've gone through a series of different um, generations of medicinal cannabis law reform. In short, it's been a disaster. Again, it's a, it's a place that you look to and say, we really don't want, want to replicate the mess of Canada. They started in 1999 with an announcement of trials and exemptions from liability for prosecution, for possession, and so on. And that scheme was found to be constitutionally inadequate. Then they came out with regulations in 2001. Then that scheme was found to be profoundly defective and uh, with fundamental flaws by 2003 by the Supreme Court. Then they went on to their next phase with completely revised uh, regulations. And a, uh, an injunction was, uh, was taken out by patients who didn't have enough money to buy the product which was being generated. And uh, the, uh, the scheme was found by the Supreme Court to be fundamentally flawed again. And so we're trying once more right now. It, it, it's, it's again been an example of what you just don't want to get into in terms of uh, a scheme that it has, has real problems in terms of quality, access, oversight, uh, and cost. Uh, it's resulted in serial litigation, which is great for people like me, but it's not really a very good uh, community initiative in terms of putting together a coherent scheme that's going to achieve the objective of getting a product uh, to those who most need it. In New Zealand, uh, there's been some availability on a one-off kind of basis uh, for some people, but the Prime Minister uh, announced that uh, there was no support for a broader discussion about the legalisation of medicinal cannabis. As in so many other places, the campaigns continue, and again, uh, often with a public face uh, from mothers with children with paediatric epilepsy. These are the uh, terms of reference that were given to the Victorian Law Reform Commission at the very, very end of 2014, making it clear that the Victorian Government was inclined to reform the law only in exceptional circumstances and basically wanting to know how to do it and what kind of regulatory oversight there should be and how any system for cultivation and manufacture of a product uh, could be constructed. So the usual sorts of things done by law reform commissions were done. An issues paper was produced within the first three months, so 150 page sort of thing. Large numbers of submissions were provided, mostly in Victoria but also from elsewhere. Consultations in uh, right through the cities and, uh, and towns of, uh, of Victoria and a, uh, a report of, I forget what it was now, 250 odd pages was provided to the government in August of 2015. The government uh, announced a few weeks later that it would implement uh, all recommendations from the Law Reform Commission, uh, with two of them being phased in, but the other 40 being implemented by legislation which it proposed to introduce uh, within weeks into the parliament. And it did. 
The process of talking to people was fascinating and memorable, sad at times, very confronting at others, at times very funny. We were told that the, uh, the, uh, there were therapeutic, positive therapeutic effects from medicinal cannabis for a, a, a bewildering array of conditions. It was just wonderful. But um, uh, there was one particular submission uh, which, uh, which took my eye, I must confess, uh, which uh, proclaimed that uh, it was particularly efficacious for uh, both Ebola and nymphomania. <laughs> I, I don't think they were contemplating people having both conditions. Um, but um, it was, um, it was a representative of the uh, exuberant uh, prozelitising uh, approach of some persons to whom we spoke. Uh, but there were also uh, many, many tragic and awful tales of people who told us of, uh, of relatives, uh, young and older, uh, who uh, had gained benefit from illegally obtained medicinal cannabis and the chances that were taken of getting uh, cannabis from bikies and the difficulties logistically and uh, in getting it into oil form which could be consumed by patients and uh, some very, very raw emotions were ventilated in front of us, including by a man whom I'll never forget in Geelong, whose son had died three weeks before of, uh, of uh, bowel cancer and who had uh, obtained significant pain relief, his father said, from the medicinal cannabis which his father had uh, manufactured for him. Uh, an honest, decent, law-abiding, loving father. And they, uh, they, they were genuinely very memorable. Uh, and important contributions made by, by so many people. Uh, there was one problematic um, uh, consultation where I, uh, I made an absolute mess of it, I'll tell you, since we're far away from uh, where it took place. It was somewhere in rural Victoria. And there was a, uh, there were a group of disparate people uh, and, um, and, uh, in a little town hall. And, there was a, um, and we were talking and it was all, all right. Uh, some people with uh, different views. And it was a jolly dog yapping away and, uh, and I said, look, does anybody know where that dog is? Maybe someone could give it some medicinal cannabis and quieten it down. And up piped the person at the back, oh, don't worry, Dr. Freckleton, we do, we do. It was much louder before. It's much happier now. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, well, anyway, do you think maybe you could, you know, why don't you bring it in here? Um, uh, because it doesn't sound terribly happy in the car. So they brought the dog in and uh, it, it, was, it was quite quiet, actually. It did seem a happy enough dog. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, what I discovered in researching was that there is a book called uh, Companion Cannabis, Medicinal <laughs> Marijuana for Dogs and Cats. So there you are, you've learnt something this evening. <laughs> so uh, I told you the lobby was, uh, was, uh, was uh, enthusiastic. Let me talk to you about conditions where there is a, 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 a reasonable and plausible and interesting evidence base. These are the five, uh, five conditions that we identified, and I'll say a little bit more to you about these in a moment. Multiple sclerosis, uh, both in respect of the pain suffered by people in latter stage uh, symptom experience and the contractures. Uh, there seems to be a, a solid base for the assertion that it, uh, medicinal cannabis makes a difference in ways which other medications do not. Nausea and vomiting following on from chemotherapy or a range of conditions including HIV AIDS and also some, uh, some cancer conditions. 
There are other uh, medications that, uh, that help with nausea and vomiting, but medicinal cannabis seems to have a uh, particular uh, aptitude for, for helping. Paediatric epilepsy, about which I'll say some more things soon, but you've seen already that children with intractable uh, epileptic conditions who are having literally hundreds of fits a day, uh, it is said, at least anecdotally, can be substantially helped by medicinal cannabis. And when we're talking about these sorts of children, their children, without getting technical about it, their brains will become complete irretrievable mush uh, after a period of time of, uh, of that incidence of epileptic fits. And there are some of these children who are just not helped by orthodox uh, anti-epilepsy medications. It's a, uh, uh, an analgesic and it's pretty effective for many people. And so it is an alternative to the opiates, especially for cancer pain. And opiates have all manner of problems from constipation to respiratory suppression and just leaving people utterly out of it. Whereas um, uh, uh, cannabinoids uh, with significant THC content might have some euphoriant effect, but uh, very little of those other uh, adverse effects. And the other area, of course, is chronic pain, uh, where that's where the money is for those with a, a view to manufacturing it and uh, growing it. Uh, and there's an evidence base that plausibly asserts quite significant levels of efficacy in relation to ongoing pain. Let me just introduce you to a little bit of a literature. I'm not going to be tedious about this, but I, I just want to give you a flavour for the state of play in relation to high quality peer reviewed uh, literature in relation to some of these sorts of areas. So I'll just walk you through these quickly and just making a, a, some short points about them. A 2015 study lamented the dearth of, uh, of rigorous research for most conditions for which medicinal cannabis is recommended and argued that it's paramount that well-designed uh, trials uh, take place with substantial numbers and with proper controls. And this is very reflective of a great many uh, pieces of absolutely contemporary writing of a more rigorous kind. General of the American Medical Association uh, argued that in many parts of the United States, the approvals that have been obtained from access to medicinal cannabis have relied on low quality scientific evidence, anecdotal reports, individual testimonials, uh, and, uh, and general opinion, falling a long way short of what would be required for any other kind of uh, access to pharmacotherapy. Whiting and others in that same issue last year of the General of the American Medical Association uh, looked at systematic reviews and meta-analyses of trials, finding evidence of moderate quality in relation to chronic pain and spasticity, and in relation to uh, improvements in the experience of nausea and vomiting after chemotherapy and similar, and a couple of other conditions. Sativex is another form of cannabis marketed by a particular uh, big pharma company, and they were interested in making it available in Australia. And they got TGA approval for that, which was a landmark breakthrough. Then they had to get it through the pharmaceutical benefits people so that it could actually be afforded by people. And they failed completely in that regard. 
and so the, uh, the company marketing it lost any interest in Australia. And it, that's understandable. They're not in it for charity. They're in it to, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, make some kind of a profit. profit. But the report from the, uh, uh, the people looking at it for pharmaceutical benefits was pretty devastating. Found no statistically significant difference between those using Sativex and those given a placebo to deal with, uh, with pain in cancer. In short, there was insufficient evidence to establish uh, sufficient effectiveness or safety uh, for the PBS to take it on board. And that's been the end of, uh, of this product in Australia. They criticised the, uh, the trials, they criticised the evidence base, and they said it basically didn't even get close. Cochrane reviews have been done in, uh, in relation to medicinal cannabis in respect of a number of different conditions. And a 2014 Cochrane review, which is the highest level, most rigorous kind of analysis of efficacy, came to the conclusion that no reliable conclusions could be drawn about the effectiveness of uh, treatment of epilepsy by cannabinoids. So contrary to what one often hears, contrary to the anecdotal reports, at this stage, the evidence, according to the Cochrane review, is just not there. Slightly more optimistic uh, positions uh, in 2009 and later in relation to chronic pain, looking at multiple trials, but still finding that more evidence from larger, well-designed trials was required. Lynch and Campbell looked at cannabinoids in relation to the same sort of area. They found an, a positive analgesic effect. Uh, they were reassuring about safety uh, and found positive preliminary data. An article this year uh, in relation to analgesic efficacy for abdominal pain found no difference between THC medication and placebos in reducing pain. It's interesting, isn't it? It's, it's contrary to what one reads in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the newspapers and contrary to what you see if you, if you just Google things on the net. But this is the hard evidence and this is the sort of thing that we had to try to grapple with in constructing a, a scheme of integrity uh, that had a proper base. The American Journal of Gastroenterology this year again proclaimed a lack of scientific data to support the efficacy of uh, cannabis in respect of gastrointestinal diseases. Journal of Ophthalmology looked at uh, the issue to do with um, uh, uh, glaucoma, eye pressure relief, and there's some evidence that, uh, that uh, cannabis is effective in that regard, but there are a variety of other effects, and in short, they had some real reservations about uh, recommending further work in the area. And here is uh, probably the most recent significant publication in respect of uh, seizure frequency reduction uh, by medicinal cannabis, finding there not to be solid investigational corroboration of efficacy. In terms of uh, its usage in the oncology area for anti-emetic uh, qualities and, uh, and reduction of cancer, uh, cancer pain, uh, an article again in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association Oncology uh, found that more research is, uh, is needed. Yarnell last year looked at issues to do with uh, the deployment of medicinal cannabis for alleviation of symptomatology of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
noted that it's been asserted that it's, it's helpful in terms of self-soothing and uh, concluded that there is no large-scale randomised controlled study uh, if, uh, in a rigorous way investigating efficacy. Overall, literature uh, is, uh, is limited at this stage in terms of its quality and its application. So it's, it's confronting and difficult, isn't it? You can see what I mean. Well, what about uh, the, uh, the worries that are expressed, including by uh, uh, medical associations about side effects and risks? One again has to look at these and reflect on how important they are and, and how much of a countervailing evidence they should be to making medicinal cannabis available. Well, one of the big worries is in relation to mental health, uh, particularly psychoses and the correlation with medicinal cannabis. We can draw on quite a bit of literature here, and there are different models. I can happily talk to you about these later on if you're interested. But the, the bottom line is that there is a relationship between schizophrenia and cannabis use. It's not straightforward. It's a complicated relationship. We can say pretty confidently on the basis of multiple studies now, and I'll, I'll give you an example of something published this year, that there is an increase in psych psychotic symptomatology in persons who abuse cannabis recreationally. Doesn't mean it's, that cannabis is causing schizophrenia, but it means that there's a complex relationship. There are higher rates of readmission amongst people who use significant amounts of recreational cannabis. You'll notice that I'm now talking about recreational cannabis rather than medicinal cannabis. There are more relapses and they occur earlier amongst people who use quite a, an amount of recreational cannabis. So it's, an, it's also an independent factor for non-adherence to antipsychotic medication, partly because people are out of it and become chaotic and uh, don't recall, remember to take their olanzapine or whatever. And as there's, there's, uh, there have been sound, extensive studies, amongst others published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, about these kinds of phenomena suggesting in fact that the relationship between cannabis use and psychosis may well go in both directions. Because there's no doubt that if you're hearing command hallucinations constantly that are tormenting you, using some cannabis will dampen those down somewhat and reduce the level of distress which you will experience. So a lot of people with schizophrenia do use uh, cannabis medicinally to achieve that objective. The problem is that it, it can also have problematic aspects going in the other direction. In, a, in an interesting and extensive article published this year in the Journal of uh, Clinical Psychiatry, Andrade uh, summarised the literature explaining that uh, there is a particular risk in relation to persons who use uh, cannabis and uh, have a high risk or experience of psychosis. And that seems to pretty much reflect the literature as it's evolved over the last 15 years. So medicinal cannabis is perceived to and experienced to provide some relief from psychotic symptoms, but ironically, it's problematic in bringing schizophrenia or other psychoses on earlier and worse, resulting in more relapses uh, and worse ones and less adherence to prescribed treatment. And there's no real evidence that it actually helps uh, with uh, the symptomatology of the condition in any significant sense. So is that a reason to uh, not to prescribe it? Well, the other aspect to it is 
okay, it, it's problematic if used at high levels recreationally, but what about if, it, if cannabis is used properly medicinally, overseen by a doctor who's looking out for any psychotic uh, consequences or any experience of anxiety or paranoia or just general deleterious consequences, and if it's not being smoked? What we can say from the literature is that as medicinal products go, cannabis has as few risks in its profile as you will find. As long as it's controlled, and ideally if, if, if it's administered in a medical environment and not smoked. Yeah. So uh, there's no doubt that there are commercial opportunities too. You've seen that man before. Last time it was with a, uh, a child with uh, paediatric epilepsy. Now he is uh, walking through the fields of medicinal cannabis being grown in Victoria. That is the Victorian Premier. Uh, he's very proud of his medicinal cannabis crops and uh, uh, is hoping for a cannabis-led recovery in uh, Victoria. We've lost the car industry, a variety of other industries. He's hoping that uh, that is going to provide a new source of revenue uh, for Victoria. There's a, there was a rather entertaining article written by a, uh, a, a thing called governmentnews.com. I'm not entirely sure what that is. It seems to be some official publication of, uh, of governments of Australia. And it was, uh, it, was, it was very keen on medicinal cannabis as a commercial opportunity. And uh, this is what it proclaimed. There are 1.8 million patients with neuropathic pain in Australia. I guess that probably means a few of us are feeling uncomfortable here. There are 130,000 patients with nausea from chemotherapy. 82,000 patients with treatment-resistant epilepsy. I suspect that that last figure is just totally, utterly wrong um, because epilepsy responds to medications reasonably effectively most of the time. Uh, but you can see the general idea that was being peddled in this uh, not very reliable uh, publication from the governments of Australia, that there could be some uh, uh, exciting commercial opportunities. But one can also see this, that there are patients who are receiving chemotherapy for, for cancer, and a lot of them, but the spectacular number of potential consumers are those with chronic pain. That's where the commercial opportunities exist and of which one needs to be aware in this area. So let's come back to what would be a good scheme in principle for Australia. We, uh, we have legislation now in Victoria which enables the growing and the manufacture and the authorisation for access of medicinal cannabis for patients. It's highly regulated. It's also in its earliest stages. At this stage, the only condition for which there is authorisation for access is paediatric epilepsy. It's a real toe-in-the-water exercise. There is an Office of Medicinal Cannabis which has been established which will be looking at access for persons with other conditions. And the first next condition uh, will be cancer pain. So how's it going? 
a lot of money, a lot of effort is being invested in it in Victoria. You can see the crops, they're well developed. Testing is taking place. An exemption has been permitted or authorisation has been allowed by the Commonwealth under Section 26A of the Narcotic Drugs Act. Uh, so Victoria as a state, through its government, can grow crops and manufacture things like oils. But as yet, uh, there is a Commonwealth regime for oversight and superintendence of growing and manufacturing cannabis. And that scheme allows the giving of licences so that entities within states can do the same. And Victoria has a, a scheme running which will enable also its regulation through people who are actually in Victoria rather than in Canberra to check the quality of the, the crops to make sure that they're being grown in decent soil with appropriate fertilisers and th more, more particularly fertilisers that are not inappropriate and then check over the manufacturers to make sure that they are not cutting it with things that they ought not to be cutting it and that it's, it's got the stipulated quantity of CBD or of THC or a balance or whatever. And at the moment, uh, the uh, Commonwealth has not granted any licences at all. Negotiations, I understand, are taking place on an ongoing way between the, uh, the uh, politicians in Canberra and the politicians in Victoria, and as yet those negotiations have not yielded any fruit. And I wouldn't want to uh, speculate as to whether they will yield fruit or what kind of fruit they will yield, but at this stage there is, a, uh, there is limited uh, capacity for this scheme to proceed further right now, a source of great disappointment, as you can imagine, for potential consumers. In Queensland, as of uh, only weeks ago, there is a medicinal cannabis scheme. It draws upon the work of the Law Reform Commission in Victoria, the legislation in Victoria, but it's significantly different. And uh, it is focused upon single patient and class of patient access to medicinal cannabis. Now, it's really early days in Queensland as yet, but the grandiose ideas of uh, of premiers wandering through fields of, uh, of, of cannabis uh, have not yet uh, inspired Queensland's politicians, although there have been some suggestions that the, uh, the conditions for growing in Queensland would probably be a good deal better than in uh, cold, wet Victoria. Uh, so how it's going to be implemented, how effective it's going to be in terms of making uh, medicinal cannabis available uh, for those who seek it and those for whom uh, specialist medical practitioners conclude it might be helpful uh, is a matter for conjecture. The Victorian scheme is predicated upon the principal gateway for access to medicinal cannabis being specialist medical practitioners. That's been very deliberate to try to stop the phenomenon in Arizona and Colorado and California whereby huge pressure is placed on general practitioners and a small number of such practitioners become known as cannabis doctors. And so the idea is to have specialist medical practitioners, neurologists, oncologists, uh, paediatric physicians and similar, being the ones who will authorise access for particular patients on the basis of their professional opinion that it's likely to be efficacious 
and for instance that other available treatment options are unsatisfactory. And then the general practitioners can continue to prescribe it once the specialist has authorised it. And the, uh, the medicinal cannabis product will come from uh, grown materials in Victoria, which have been manufactured into tinctures and oils, not in smokable form, dispensed through pharmacies so that it's kind of mainstreamed like any other form of pharmacotherapy without the stigma that might otherwise attach to it and so that it's like any other medicinal product available at a pharmacy. The hope is that, well, hope was that it would be available on 1 January 2017. I doubt it will be available before 2018 at this stage, from what I can see of how the scheme is evolving, but significant efforts are certainly being expended on getting it there. It's going to need to be underwritten by the government. It's going to have to be affordable, and the government has committed to its being affordable. In other words, it's a scheme that's running parallel with the Therapeutic Goods Administration schemes and a pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And the idea is that when the different forms of THC and cannabidiol uh, medicinal cannabis become available in their different percentages, they'll be as affordable as medication that's on the PBS. You can see that it's going to be expensive for all the regulatory apparatus to be functioning for the people to grow it, the people to manufacture it, the people to distribute it, the pharmacists to sell it, the doctors to uh, authorise access to it. So it involves a significant uh, commitment financially from a government if it's to be done in this way. There isn't a, a significant feasible alternative right now because there are major problems with the synthetic cannabinoids that have been experienced in different parts of the world. We've got the one Sativex which is theoretically available, but it's not in any real sense available in Australia. So that's the reason for the routing it through the, the growth in Victoria Road and the manufacture in Australia Road. So where are we going? What should be uh, the features of a, uh, a scheme that has appropriate balance have? Well, the first thing is to say that medicinal cannabis is not a panacea. It doesn't fix everything. It may well be constructive for a number of conditions, but further than that, for the most part, we cannot say. There's a modest evidence base for some conditions thus far, but there's still legitimate argument about how efficacious it really is, even in respect of those conditions. We need to know more. We need to have really rigorous sound trials conducted so that we can tell. And that's tricky when there's a clamour for access to the actual product, not to placebo-controlled trials. So it's important that any scheme recognise the currently limited evidence about efficacy. What can be said is that the risks are not too bad. People might become overly invested and overly enthused about it, but at least they're not going to die of medicinal cannabis. There are no known deaths from medicinal cannabis. Some people might get a little bit paranoid and anxious, but if it's being overseen by doctors, they should be able to attend to that quite effectively. There's not a lot to be said for smoked versions of, uh, of cannabis being made available for medicinal purposes. It's contrary to our public health approaches generally. 
and there are other, other options uh, in terms of more medicinally familiar routes for administration that could be done. Having grow your own schemes by which people uh, uh, plant crops in their own garden or grow it hydroponically in their houses, we've concluded didn't have a lot going for it. It, it promotes crime. There have been ugly circumstances in which uh, people have uh, uh, removed the plants just when they were ready for, uh, for application uh, for other purposes. Uh, the confusion about uh, CBD cannabis and uh, THC cannabis would be problematic and the variability in terms of quality of a crop and constituency of, for instance, CBD, T THC, CBN uh, would be unpredictable and impossible for any doctor uh, to uh, monitor. Compassion has its role to play, but it should not be a, uh, an alternative to rigorous evaluation and involvement from uh, medical practitioners and pharmacists. What we found and what constitutes the real breakthrough in terms of international medicinal cannabis law reform is that if a step-by-step, -step, modest, evidence-based process is proposed, medical practitioners will engage with it. In Canada, they have not. They've undermined it. In the United States, they haven't. A tiny cabal of, uh, of GPs are prescribing it, but the orthodoxy within medicine continues to oppose it. The breakthrough that we were able to make in Victoria was to talk long and carefully and attentively to medical practitioners, explaining that we understood the limitations and exploring with them how a graduated scheme could be implemented. And that's resulted in the abandonment of wholesale oppositionalism from the Australian Medical Association. And that renders a scheme feasible. And a scheme is not feasible unless uh, medical practitioners are involved in it, unless you simply have a grow your own scheme in the, uh, the bottom of the garden. So that's been the breakthrough in Victoria, and now there is cooperation and a level of enthusiasm, especially from uh, paediatric physicians in relation to it and an integration of the concept of medicinal uh, cannabis into the orthodox pharmacopoeia. It's important, of course, then, that uh, good manufacturing practice, which is a technical term, and good agricultural practice uh, be implemented and mandated by regulators. But at the same time, it, it may, it's a good thing to have regulators, but the uh, bureaucracy attaching to the scheme should not be so extreme as to be oppressive or, uh, or such as to push people into simply getting it uh, from the local pub rather from uh, the, uh, the pharmacy after authorisation from a specialist medical practitioner. And it seemed to us that fundamental to a scheme should be that it be uh, well evaluated in an ongoing way. Because what we talk about today to do with medicinal cannabis will bear little relationship to the kind of informed conversation that we can have in five years' time. It really will be quite different then. Some things that we hope might be efficacious will turn out not to be. Other ones that are just speculative will turn out to have a sound evidence base. And we need to know those things so that uh, uh, availability can be tailored to uh, growing and fundamentally changing medical knowledge. As you've heard, there's a prodigious amount of material being published in the area, but only a small percentage of it is actually helpful in terms of gauging what will work and, uh, and what will not and what the risks are. So we're in an early stage of law reform in Australia. The breakthrough has been made by the Queensland and Victorian legislation. Uh, 
the implementation we are already learning in Victoria is really difficult. And, in, and, and it's made the harder in our country because of a complex interplay between Commonwealth and states. And it's, it's, it's going to be a troubled road. Uh, but uh, with persistence, the potential is there for a scheme which little bit by little bit blends compassion with evidence-based medicine and makes available a product which continues to promise a great deal for people who are in circumstances which makes uh, medicinal cannabis worth a serious try. Thank you. Time for a couple of very quick questions, and I see there's a mic, a roving mic. So if you do have a question, can you put your hand up so that the mics can grab you? There's a cut one here, Amy. So this might be a little bit, a um, little bit uh, naive, but with the um, with the legalization of a um, of a once really restricted drug with certain labels attached to it with the yes. diminish in diminishing that sort of label do you see that um, there's going to be a greater intake of um, of illegal smokable marijuana because of that change of labels or no it's no it's not a naive question it's a really important one and it's one that um, as you can imagine the police uh, were uh, interested, and it also impacts upon our capacity to comply with the single convention on narcotic drugs, which we need to do as a matter of international law. If you have a scheme which has prescription in effect of medicinal cannabis in small quantities, some of which will have no THC content, uh, where it's highly regulated, uh, the, the likelihood of recreational users pouncing on, uh, on that small amount which is being prescribed for dying people or children with epilepsy or people with multiple sclerosis is absolutely minimal. So the potential for diversion is kept to an absolute minimum. So that important consideration is attended to by this kind of a scheme. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. That was really very interesting. Um, I'm just curious, how has the Victorian government decided what particular plant they're growing, what level of THC compared to cannabidiol mm. when the mm. federal government hasn't decided what yep. it will allow? So it just seems like they're almost one step ahead of the feds. <laughs> um, and they've, they've got a 26C authorisation from the Commonwealth government to grow and manufacture whatever they like if it's cannabinoid. Uh, so that's what they're doing. And I understand them to be growing um, different strains uh, with different amounts of, uh, of CBD and THC in it, uh, trying to get right a, uh, a consistent uh, quality and constituency so that a variety of different products can be made available for specialists to authorise in due course. Uh, and so the uh, the the permission that they've got from the Commonwealth is not inhibiting that process at all. What is in uh, the, the absence of authorisation for entities other than the state government inhibit, is, is inhibiting is a scheme whereby commercial entities come in and undertake that exercise. At the moment it's a government exercise 
which is not what the Victorian government or probably any other government wants. Uh, and uh, that's something that they're going to have to try to work through in due course. It's a political issue in the end. Thank you. I was going to ask quite a similar question, um, but I might just change it up a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. uh, is there an understood impact of THC on childhood development? Oh, that's a good question too. Um, we don't know. Um, it, it, it's, there's every reason to be concerned about THC intake for women who are pregnant, for the fetus, and also uh, for child development, particularly in early years and probably also in the adolescent and pre-adolescent period. In terms of solid data about, uh, about that, we don't have them. Uh, because what data there are about risks of, of cannabis come from recreational use and they're weak at this stage. What can be said is this, you really wouldn't want pregnant women using medicinal cannabis if you could possibly avoid it. And you really wouldn't want children using medicinal cannabis either unless you can avoid it. If you have a child who is five and having 200 epileptic seizures a day, Issues to do with impacting on their, their development are the least of the considerations. There may well be some adverse consequence, but it's better than being dead or, or, or having a brain which is just dysfunctional completely. So um, uh, those are, are tough issues, hard to research, but important and real considerations to take into account. Can I just quickly follow up? Will the trials in the Victorian studies or the medicinal marijuana program, will that prove any evidence around this? That, well, the hope is that they will. And there are trials involving Queensland and New South Wales as well. Uh, a, a philanthropist left, I think it was $21 million, uh, to a, 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 a university in New South Wales. And so a massive and sophisticated uh, trial is commencing. And they'll be, they'll be very much looking at risks and adverse consequences as well as benefits. And uh, probably some of the best data of, a, of a, a rigorous kind anywhere in the world are going to come out of developments in Australia in the next three or four years. That's, I, I think that's the hardest question in relation to medicinal cannabis law reform. Uh, the view I have is that this is the area where we need to be most cautious and we need to build in significant impediments to access to avoid abuse. I think there are ways of doing that. Stop it being smokable. And that way, people who are just after euphoriant effects won't be especially interested in it. They can get it cheaply elsewhere anyway. Um, have it only available through specialist medical practitioners. And, and maybe, and this, is, this was the Commission's recommendation, where two specialists have, are prepared to authorise it and where they're prepared to say that no other reasonably available uh, option is succeeding it having been tried. 
I, I think it's really important that we learn from the problems afflicting California, and one only has to spend a bit of time in Los Angeles or San Francisco and see the, the, uh, the shops everywhere peddling it to see that uh, what's taking place is wholesale abuse using the medical profession and, or a tiny bit of the medical profession and using um, uh, the law. And it's important that we not replicate that. And uh, I suspect that access for chronic pain will be the last of the five major conditions that will be looked to because governments are conscious of the problems attendant upon granting access to that, which uh, are difficult to manage. Thank you. And your second, my second question, your... Um, Hope this one's easier. Rovers Commissioner, yes. do you find good education programs for medical practitioners? Yep. When I was at medical school, we were taught how no, to prescribe... Of course not. Well, you, I think you were taught not to prescribe illegal drugs. And also uh, drugs that <laughs> hadn't uh, got uh, TGA uh, uh, authorization. Uh, there's a, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a program and a website and an outreach facility generated by um, uh, uh, Canada Health, the equivalent to the health department here, which is really good. Um, it's, uh, they provide um, in-person educational programs, lots of data, they summarise continuing uh, research, and it's, uh, it's thoughtful and sophisticated. And if we're going to do this, uh, we need to do it in Australia as well, because uh, practitioners uh, of all kinds, uh, by which I mean other than general practitioners and specialist medical practitioners, but naturopaths and everybody in the health industry needs to be able to go to somewhere authorised to understand what's available, uh, what the evidence base is and, and what risks there are and what sorts of things need to be looked out for. So that should be a, a fundamental component, in my view, of any medicinal cannabis scheme. Is there a uh, doctor in Canberra that's setting that up? Good. Good. We might have one more question, I think. I, I just wanted to clarify you. Um, I, did I hear you correctly that you, the Victorian government's looking at subsidising the cost um, of um, finished um, product for Absolutely. patients to consume. Otherwise, nobody will be able to afford it. Because when you consider to produce a, a packet of um, this product because of the good manufacturing processes, yeah. et cetera, it's going to be quite expensive. It is. Then that's quite alarming that potentially funds could be diverted away from other areas where there's good science to, to apply um, yeah. funds, such as uh, yeah. meningococcal vaccines at the moment, they're not being subsidised, etc. So I'm very concerned that... Um, that one government in one state would be diverting funds away from more helpful areas to support this. And will that then uh, foster um, sort of um, tourism from other states for people who want to access medicinal cannabis? The balances, and it's, it's another good point, the, the, the balances in this whole exercise are really difficult. Um, there's a finite health budget, and when you allocate money to one option, inevitably it means it's not available for something else. And the relativities are diabolically difficult. I think all that can be said is that some of the considerations in this area are worthy ones. Children with this intractable form of epilepsy, people in the latter stages of MS, uh, people with unrelieved nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy or from certain kinds of cancer, 
and people with cancer pain for whom opiates are not a good option. And if one gets into the uncomfortable position of weighing one kind of condition against another, I think one can probably reasonably say that these sorts of conditions are worthy ones to consume a portion of the budget. You wouldn't want it, the budget to be devoured by it, and one has to acknowledge that inevitably it's going to mean that some other things are not being subsidised in the way that one would like. So it's, it's really difficult. Uh, now, the second component of your question, um, uh, remind me for a moment. Medical tourism. Medical tourism, yeah. Uh, Victoria's imposed a residency requirement. That goes a reasonable way towards stopping people from just popping across the border from Albury. Uh, I haven't checked to see whether Queensland is going to do the same. I think it probably is. Uh, I think that's probably a, a reasonable way of going about the exercise. But it's, it's manifestly unsatisfactory that we now have one scheme in Victoria a significantly different one in Queensland and nothing anywhere else in the country. It's an area where we should have a uniform approach, but unfortunately the Commonwealth hasn't given the lead on this and showed no sign of doing so, and that's why the politicians in Victoria, Queensland and to a lesser degree New South Wales have taken the step. And that forced the Commonwealth's hand uh, to, to make some changes to the Narcotics Drugs, Narcotic Drugs Act, enabling the processes to, uh, to, to uh, evolve. But uh, if one looks a few years ahead, it would be an awful lot more sensible and better if we had a consistent national approach on the issue. And I think that's something to which we should all aspire.